As Deduzi said, we're turning in our Bibles to Jonah, the prophet Jonah, and we're going to consider him today. And over the next few months, like Deduzi has said, we're going to be looking at some Old Testament characters and have a think about the lessons that they have to teach for us today. And I'll leave it to each of the brothers to introduce the different characters that they're going to be speaking on. Um, but over the next three months and the three weeks that I've got, I intend to think about this prophet Jonah. But first of all, let me give you a few background comments about him and then have a think about why we want to learn from Jonah himself. So Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II of Israel. And the reason, of course, why there was a northern kingdom in Israel and a southern kingdom was because after the death of Solomon, who was the third king of Israel, there was internal division amongst the people and some of them followed one king in the north and some of them followed another king in the south. The ones in the north, they followed Jeroboam I they splintered off and there was about 10 tribes there and they were led into idolatry there by Jeroboam the first. Meanwhile, a couple of tribes in the south, they tended to follow King Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And there were some good kings there and some bad kings, but eventually both of these kingdoms would turn so bad that God would judge them and send them away captive into exile because of their sin against God. But when we meet Jonah, the exile hasn't happened yet. There's still two kingdoms. He's in the north, speaking God's word to the people there. The exile hasn't happened, and both of the kingdoms are in full swing. And the reason why we're able to place Jonah so precisely in this timeline is because in 2 Kings, in chapter 14 and verse 25, we actually read that Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam II would recover some of Israel's territory that had been taken away from their enemies, uh, taken away by their enemies, rather. And so it seems then that Jonah's role as a prophet in Israel was one of speaking a lot of good news to the people. It was about telling the people that God had had compassion on them. God was giving them back things that had been taken, them, taken away from them. Nevertheless, if we expect to find the book of Jonah to be a story about a faithful prophet speaking good news to the people of Israel, then we're in for a bit of a rude awakening because what stands out in this book of Jonah is not Jonah's faithfulness, but precisely the fact that he's so unwilling to obey God. Tim Keller calls him the prodigal prophet, precisely because he's constantly trying to run away from what God is asking him to do. And so in the midst of Jonah's successful job of bringing this good news to the Israelites that God has had compassion on them and that he's giving them back territory that's been taken from them, Jonah's called on to deliver a message to God's enemies. And God calls him to deliver a message to the capital city of Assyria, which was Nineveh. Now, basically, the Assyrians were the terrorists of the ancient Near East. They were a terrorist state, if there ever was one. Sometimes we hear about things that ISIS did in Syria and Iraq. All of that pales in comparison to what the Assyrians did. They were a brutal, savage kingdom. Um, so they they recorded as doing unspeakable things like pulling out people's tongues and and chopping people's heads off and getting their relatives to carry them about on a stick and all of this and burning people alive, all of this kind of stuff, which was absolutely horrific. And the only reason why I mention that is to highlight the fact that the Assyrians were so horrible, so bad, 
that Jonah's response of not going to preach to them is, ex is entirely reasonable. We're not supposed to think that Jonah is just being really stubborn here. He's being quite reasonable. They're very, very bad, and Jonah doesn't want to go and preach to them so that they would repent. And eventually, the Assyrians would come along in 722 BC, and they would destroy the kingdom of Israel, uh, absolutely savage the land. And so Jonah doesn't know it at the time, of course, but he's going to be preaching to the people that would one day be the ones who would destroy his own people. And it's to that people, then, that God sends Jonah. And because then he is unwilling to do it, we're supposed to feel a good deal of sympathy for him. Because if God asked us to heed the call to go and preach in a terrorist state today, how many of us would actually be willing to do that? How many of us would be willing to go to a state which has no laws, which is absolutely savage and brutal and has a good deal of um, chance that we would actually get killed? Well, the rest of the book then deals with Jonah and his call by God and his response to God's call. And persistently, Jonah tries to avoid God's call one way or another. But God works with Jonah to reveal his compassion for the Ninevites and his compassion for Jonah. And what we see in the book then reveals the character of God in surprising ways. And that's then why I want to look at this book of Jonah. Not because it reveals this really faithful prophet that we've got to emulate in our lives. Because a lot of the time when we see Jonah, he's doing things we shouldn't copy. But precisely because in the book of Jonah, as we see God's dealings with Jonah and with the Ninevites, we see the character of God displayed. Jonah teaches us about God and his compassion and his grace. And I want to learn from Jonah what we can learn about God. And so over the next three months in the three slots that I've got, I want to focus on three things that Jonah teaches us about God. Firstly, in today's um, slot, I want to think about what we can learn about God as a persevering God and think about how God perseveres with Jonah. Secondly, in my next session, I want to think about how God is a gracious God, gracious not only to Jonah, but also to the Ninevites. And in my final session, I want to think about how God is a surprising God, a God who constantly does things that we don't expect and how this is something which should really encourage us. So today I want to think about how God is one who perseveres with us and how that's such an encouragement for us. But before we do that, I want to read the account of Jonah from that book by his name. It's a short book. It's only four chapters, relatively short chapters too. And so it'll do us well to read it. Uh, and so as we're reading it, keep in mind that Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh isn't unexpected. It's quite reasonable. And I think we should also then read it with a view to what God is doing here. Think about how God is acting, how God is being gracious. And today we want to think about how God is persevering with Jonah, continuing to be good to him. So let's read from Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. 
Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know in whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. <coughs> for I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would, what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This then is the word of the Lord, and the Lord leaves us with this question at the end that confronts us as those who read the book where God asks us, in essence, is it not right that God should be gracious towards his creatures that he's made? And this book that leaves us with that question ringing in our ears because it wants to press on this theme that God is a gracious God. And it's one of those sub-themes that I want to think about this morning, that in God's grace, not only does he show compassion in the Ninevites, but he shows that grace towards Jonah by persevering with Jonah again and again and again. Now, you don't need to go very far in the Christian life before you discover that God is a persevering God. When we start out the Christian life, we, we get really encouraged by verses like in Philippians 1 verse 6, where Paul tells the Philippians that, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And this then assures us and gives us comfort that just as God has started his work in us, saved us, given us his spirit, then God is surely going to bring that work to completion at the day when he brings us face to face into his presence. But soon enough in the Christian life, we start to discover the reality of what that looks like in our own experience. And it it's no longer just words that we read, but we discover the truth of it. We find ourselves perhaps drifting into some sin. And God sends a wake-up call into our lives that shakes us up and causes us to repent. Or maybe we find the distractions of life too much and we stop paying as much attention to God and his word. And then God brings along something into our life that takes something from us and drives us to our, need as, uh, to our knees as we realize how much we need God. Maybe we find ourselves at times falling into company that we shouldn't associate with. It's really bad for us. 
And then God, in sometimes painful ways, takes us out of that company, removes those friends from us, and we discover that God is at work again and again in our lives, persevering with us to bring his work to completion. And what he says about continuing his work in us isn't just nice, reassuring platitudes, words of comfort, but it's a really firm reality that because God took us on as adopted children, he is going to work with us right to the very end of our lives until he brings us into his presence. He will persevere with us. And that's exactly what Jonah discovers. And so after Jonah receives his call to go to Nineveh to preach this message of repentance to them, he promptly uh, goes down to Joppa, to the, the seaport, and he gets a ticket for a boat heading to Tarshish, which is the exactly opposite direction of Nineveh. So where he was in Israel, the Assyrian Empire and Nineveh was away over in the east, and he should have been traveling east to get there. Instead, he goes to the coast, and he sets sail across the Mediterranean going, Mediterranean going west to get as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can get. So he's going the completely wrong way. And the text says that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And that puzzles me a little bit because I think, did Jonah not know that God was everywhere. He did know this because we see that in verse 9 of the chapter, he tells the sailors as much. He does know that. So maybe he's blinding himself. He's trying to ignore the fact that God is the God who is all-seeing and his presence is everywhere. But nevertheless, he's trying to run away. He's trying to get away from the place where God's presence is. He's trying to get away from God's voice. And it's utterly misguided. And God lets him go so far. God lets him go to Joppa. God lets him get on the boat. God lets the boat set sail and Jonah is merrily sailing through the Mediterranean and everything seems to be going pretty well so far. But God would persevere with Jonah and Jonah didn't count on the fact that God would not give up on him. And so we read in chapter 1, verse 4, that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. You see, God wasn't going to let him run away. God was going to keep going after Jonah. And this isn't because God is vindictive and cruel. It's not like he's kind of got Jonah in his net and like a fish in a net and he's trying to grab him just because he wants him. No, it's more like when you see a child running headlong into traffic, you grab that child to stop them from getting run over. And that's exactly what God is doing with Jonah. He sees Jonah's self-destructive path and he's grabbing Jonah by the scruff of the neck and stopping him from ruining himself. And this becomes really clear because what then happens as a result of this storm is Jonah is forced to admit his sin. He's forced to admit how wrong he is about all this. And so it's really ironic because there's Jonah. He's trying to run away from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to get away from thinking about what God has said to him. And the captain comes down in the middle of the, into the inner part of the ship, in the middle of this storm, and he sees Jonah lying asleep and he's raging. He says in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And the irony is that Jonah's trying to run away from God and here's a pagan sealer telling him that he needs to get on his knees and pray. 
And so Jonah is driven to confront God, to become face-to-face with God by a pagan sailor who's barged in on him. And maybe Jonah then begins to pray seriously. Maybe he just feigns prayer. Either way, Jonah isn't off the hook yet because God keeps persevering so that Jonah is forced to acknowledge the truth that he cannot get away from God. And so the sailors, they get together and they cast lots to try and find out who's caused this trouble. Exactly what this casting lots looked like, I'm not sure. Something similar to pulling straws. And sure enough, Jonah's straw gets pulled. And they say to him, Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And from the man who was running away from God, he begins to make his confession that he can't run away from God. And he says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And so he's forced to say that he can't get away from, from God. This is the God of heaven, the God over everything. He made the sea and the dry land. And there's no escaping from this God. And Jonah is forced by these circumstances, arranged by God, to admit to the folly of his way. And even today, God is a God who sends storms into our lives to bring us back on track. And when I say that, it almost sounds cruel, like God's trying to make life difficult for us uh, just for the sake of it. But it's actually because God loves us, that he perseveres with us, that he won't let us get away and ruin ourselves and that's what the writer of hebrews tells us in chapter 12 of hebrews in verse 5 he quotes proverbs and says my son do not make light of the lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the lord disciplines the one he loves and if you find you're going through circumstances that are painful because of your sin against god it's because he loves you that he's bringing those difficult circumstances upon you and again in Verse 11 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, the writer says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And it feels really difficult for us. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so when I say that God brings storms into our lives to bring us back on track, I mean that as an encouragement. I mean that so that you would see that in times of difficulty when God deals with us firmly in discipline because we've gone wrong it's because he loves us that he's doing that and I'm sure that you can reflect back now in times in your life when you've been going astray you've been doing things that are taking you away from God rather than following the Lord and the Lord has sent difficulties into your life as a result of that and the very fact that he sent those difficulties is a sign that he's persevering with you he's not giving up on you It would be much worse if you were getting away with your sin and it wasn't causing you any trouble because then God wouldn't be caring for you precisely because sin brings difficulty into our lives that shows that God loves us and he's bringing us back to himself. Of course, it's worth saying as well that just because you're going through suffering or difficulty in your life right now does not mean that God is trying to get you to repent of some specific sin. Uh, I wouldn't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say that. But what I am trying to say is that there are times in our lives when we recognize that God has brought circumstances into our life to discipline us because of what we've done wrong. There's a clear connection between the consequences and what we have done. And it's in those circumstances that we find not that God has given up on us, 
but that God is persevering with us to bring us back. Now for Jonah, in these circumstances, he's been found out, he's been forced to admit his sin before God, and everything seems lost then for Jonah. He despairs, but even in the midst of his despair, when he feels that all is lost, God still perseveres. And the sailors, they pick him up, they hurl him into the sea, and he's sinking in the sea, about to die. And we see another remarkable example of God's perseverance because it says in chapter 117 and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah this is what the Lord has appointed to persevere with Jonah and of course modern readers they might take offense at such a statement they might think to themselves well this makes the book of Jonah a little bit improbable we should probably read it as a parable or something nice nice little story with some lessons but if we believe in a God who created the universe the God who raises the dead and raised up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, then really, uh, to put a pun on it, it's not too hard to swallow the fact that, that God could appoint a fish to swallow Jonah. And there have been instances reported in modern history where uh, whales have swallowed human beings and those human beings have survived. So that gives us even less reason to disbelieve what we read here. But the significance of the fish here isn't supposed to make us think, my, my, what a miracle, and, and to get us to ponder um, just all the facts of this miracle. It's almost just as a matter of fact that it mentions that the great fish swallowed Jonah. The whole point of this is to get us to be impressed by the perseverance of God. God will do the, the most amazing things to persevere with his children. Because God could have quite easily let Jonah go at this point. He's been thrown into the sea. He's about to die. And God could just let Jonah go. Jonah's not indispensable. God could get somebody else to go to Nineveh. Jonah's been disobedient. He doesn't deserve to be rescued in any sense. And yet, God appoints this great fish to come and to swallow him up. And that's not even the end of the story because it's not just that God has got the fish to swallow him and leave him there. No, because in chapter 2, um, at the end, we read that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. And what impresses me here is that not only does God stop our waywardness, as in the case of the storm, when God stops us in our tracks, but God actively then changes our course. God turns us round. God actively redirects us, as he does with Jonah in the case of the fish. And it takes the fish then to recalibrate Jonah, not only spiritually, but geographically. Spiritually, it's in the fish that he comes to terms with who God is and God's faithfulness. He comes to terms spiritually in the fish with his commitment to this God and he makes his vows to the Lord and concludes by saying that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But also then geographically, the fish recalibrates him, relocates him and literally vomits him up onto the dry land so that on the dry land he can go about and do what he's been asked to do. And it reminds me of the words of David in Psalm chapter 20, or Psalm 23 and verse 3, when David says there that God leads him in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In other words, David's saying that God keeps me on the right path because of his own reputation. God has committed himself to being our God. He has taken us on as his own children. And so God's reputation is at stake when we go astray. 
And so for the sake of his own name and reputation, God very often takes us away from our wayward paths and puts us under the right paths for his name's sake. And David's convinced that in his own life, God has done that many times. Not because there's anything special about David, but because God keeps him in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. And in Jonah's case, he had certainly left the right path. But God sent this fish to stop him and bring him back. And again and again, our own experience, we think of times when we were wayward and God intervened in our circumstances, sometimes doing things that we wouldn't have expected, sometimes doing things that were really strange and improbable because he's actively restoring us for his name's sake. He's bringing us back to the paths of righteousness because he's a persevering God, a God who doesn't give up on us because we are his children. And then there's one last final indication of God's perseverance um, that I want to think about. There's probably other instances in the book that I'll be skipping over, but one last one that I want to think of, that not only does God send storms to stop us, not only does he send fish to redirect us, but he sends his word to us again. He speaks to us again. He uses us again. Jonah has been brought safely then to the dry land. And maybe Jonah has been washed up on shore and he thinks to himself, well, that's that. Uh, I've blown my chances and there's very little that I can do now. I'm a, I'm a failure. But that's not the case. In chapter 3 and verse 1, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Praise God that he speaks to us again, even after we have failed him and let him down. Thank God that he's a God who perseveres with us and uses us even after failure. So Jonah's confronted again with the word of the Lord so that he can actually do what God has called him to do. And so we learn from this that failure doesn't mean that we're no longer useful. What we see in Jonah's case is that God doesn't give up on Jonah, but that God actually has purposes for him to still be useful. And Jonah will take that message to Nineveh and will preach that message so that people repent. And you see an example of that in the New Testament as well. Um, John Mark was a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas, a very useful young man. And in Acts chapter 13, we read that in one point of the missionary journeys when they're going about spreading the gospel, John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas and he heads back to Jerusalem. And in Acts 13, you don't think an awful lot of that. You think it could be some circumstance that's meant that he's had to go back. But we discover in Acts chapter 15 that this was actually a significant failure on John Mark's part, Mark for short. And so in Acts chapter 15, there's this massive argument that breaks out between Paul and Barnabas over whether on their new missionary journey they should actually take Mark with them. And Paul says that they shouldn't take Mark with them because Mark had abandoned them. And Barnabas thinks that obviously Mark has changed enough that they should take Mark with them. And this leads to a decisive split whereby um, Barnabas uh, takes Mark and heads off and Paul takes Silas and heads off in the other direction. And I, I don't want to pass judgment on who was right there. It's difficult to tell. But what's really interesting in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul is writing some years afterwards, and he's writing to Timothy, and he says in 2 Timothy 4, 11, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. 
What we see here is that Mark, who was once going to be set aside as being no longer useful, is actually very useful for Paul. And evidently that relationship then between Mark and Paul was restored. And so it's like a New Testament Jonah. And what it means is that failure does not mean the end of our usefulness in God's service. God perseveres with us. And I don't know what failures you might have made in your life. Sometimes we make failures that are only known to ourselves. Nobody else knows about them. And sometimes those failures haunt us and we feel, what if I had done what was right? Would God be using me in some way that he isn't using me now? And it's true that sometimes due to certain failures, we can no longer do what God had originally planned for us to do. But that doesn't mean we're not useful in God's service. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have plans for us. And Jonah reminds us that even though he had failed, God still has a purpose for him. God still had work for him to do. And God spoke to him again. And whether we have failed, it's still true today that God has purposes and usefulness for us. And by tracing then this theme of God's perseverance through this book of Jonah, I've hoped that I've encouraged you to trust more deeply in the God who perseveres with us, a God who doesn't give up on us. I trust that I've helped you be more thankful to a faithful God who will not let you go and has purposes for each one of us. But I also hope that against the backdrop of human failure and weakness, the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ would become even more apparent and precious to us. Because what we see here is a prophet like us, like so many other great men and women of God, who have failed God and have let God down, but not the Lord Jesus. We turn to him and find a greater than Jonah, a greater than any of us. And his call to enter this world of wickedness and sin would, was not met by Jonah's response, who said that he didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach to them. No, the Lord Jesus was confronted by even greater wickedness than that of the Assyrians. And he came to us because he loved us. The Lord Jesus faced a storm as well, but it wasn't a storm because God was trying to stop the Lord Jesus, trying to turn the Lord Jesus around. No, it was a storm, not because of anything the Lord Jesus had done, but because of what we had done. Because of our sins, the Lord Jesus entered the storm of God's wrath and took the punishment that we deserved. And just like Jonah, the Lord Jesus knew that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But this wasn't to try and to get the Lord Jesus to pause, to, to recalibrate, to change his direction. No, this was a time for us to realize that he had been crucified for us and that he was facing the death that we should have deserved. And his reemergence from the grave, just like Jonah re-emerged from the depths of the sea, wasn't a chance for the Lord Jesus to hear God's message again and actually obey it. No, it was God's final vindication of the Lord Jesus that he had done everything that God had asked him to do and he had borne our curse on the cross. It was God's approval of his son. And against then the backdrop of Jonah's failure and our own failure, we find 
the kind of mirror image in Jonah of all that the Lord Jesus is and has done. And so as we read this book and think about it together over the next few months, I want us to see not only our failure and Jonah's failure, but to see the one to whom it's all most perfectly reflected, and that's in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a greater than Jonah, who is the one who perseveres with us, just as he persevered with Jonah himself long ago. Let's bow and ask God to bless this word to us. Father, we thank you that in the midst of our own unfaithfulness, the Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly faithful. And just as you dealt so tenderly with Jonah and persevered with him, we thank you that the Lord Jesus deals with us in exactly the same way. And he so graciously leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He so graciously redirects our paths when we are going on the wrong way. And he so graciously uses us in his service, even though we're just earthen vessels and poor ones at that. So we thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his faithfulness that has reconciled us to you. We thank you for his perfection and glory. And we thank you that because of that, we can count on your faithfulness towards us and know that one day you will bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom. We ask then that you would keep us faithful to you, eager to obey you as we wait for the return of our Savior, in whose name we ask it. Amen.